Until I was about 10, I lived in a street of new houses called Dickens Drive. Pickwick Close was just around the corner. Even now, when I get the bus to London, I pass the Pickwick Guest House on the road going out of Oxford. Now, I don't think you have to be a Dickens obsessive to notice things like that. Dickens is everywhere. The costume dramas, the catchphrases, the merchandise. Go to Rochester or Chatham, where he grew up, and it's hard to turn a corner without bumping into a Dickensian ghost. Little Dorrit body piercing, a taste of two cities Indian restaurant. There's even a little theme park, Dickens World, complete with Great Expectations boat ride and a soft play area for children called, rather oddly, Fagin's Den. Whenever new souvenirs come to light, they're treated with all the veneration of a saint's relics. At one auction in 2010, one of his dog's collars sold for almost $12,000. The year before, an old toothpick he once cleaned his teeth with fetched over $9,000. So what would the world look like without Dickens in it? What would it sound like without the words and phrases that he invented or popularised? Butterfingers, funky, old dear, slow coach, snobbish, red tape, whoosh, and dozens more. Imagine if Dickens had never existed. It's a difficult thought experiment, a bit like saying, don't think of an elephant, and then realising that all you can think about is elephants. But we can try. We can retrace his steps and see why he became so popular and why he never stopped worrying about being sucked back into obscurity. Most of what we know about Dickens's life comes from the biography written by his friend John Forster. And the story he told was one in which an obscure clerk made his way to the top through a mixture of talent and determination. It was a romance or a comedy with a happy ending. But we could also think of it as a different kind of story, as a whodunit. And like all good whodunits, this story begins with a body. In 1827, a corpse was discovered in a freezing apartment in Johnson's Court, a gloomy place just off Fleet Street in London. It was a young man. According to one newspaper, he was completely covered in vermin. He had scratched the skin off almost every part of his body, and the sheets and the bed were nearly soaked with blood. His name was Robert Bowles, and he was an out-of-work legal clerk. He had died penniless and alone. Six years later, just a few feet away, another former legal clerk dropped off his first story in the editor's box of the monthly magazine. His name was Charles Dickens. It was a turning point in his life and also in the history of literature. But what if he'd lost his nerve and in a sliding doors moment, what if he'd walked on by? What if he'd ended up like Robert Bowles or perhaps like one of the other clerks he would later write about? The young man who starves to death in his early sketch, Our Next Door Neighbour, for instance. Or perhaps that mysterious stranger in Bleak House who scratches out a living copying legal documents and calls himself Nemo, meaning nobody. Why did Dickens end up as a somebody rather than a nobody? 
That's the question I set out to explore in my recent biography, Becoming Dickens. But it's also a question that intrigued Dickens himself. In Dombey and Son, he describes how the hero broods over what might have been and what was not. And Dickens often seems to have used the page like a funfair mirror that produced strange, distorted versions of himself. The most famous example is probably David Copperfield, whose initials reflect Dickens's in reverse, just like someone looking into a mirror, and who over the course of the novel meets a mad second-hand clothes dealer named Charlie, a flute-playing schoolmaster also named Charlie, and a character called Mr Dick, who is writing a memorial of Charles I. Oliver Twist's only friend in the workhouse is also called Dick, and that's the same name Dickens gave to the blind blackbird in Nicholas Nickleby, who has lost his voice and spends his time dozing alone in his cage. A Tale of Two Cities is even more complicated, because it centres on physical doubles Dickens originally wanted to call Charles Darney and Dick Carton, so even their initials would reflect each other, C-D-D-C. So, the mad, the lonely, the condemned, sometimes even the dead. Why did Dickens choose these characters as shadows or echoes of himself? The answer, as so often, lies in his childhood. Dickens's interest in these lives that are thwarted or knocked off course can be traced to the period he spent working in a blacking warehouse as a small boy after his father was imprisoned for debt. We don't know exactly how long he worked there, maybe a year, maybe more, maybe less. The crucial thing for Dickens was that at the time even he didn't know how long it would last. And in his imagination it took on all the power of an indeterminate prison sentence, a personal hell of rats and dirt. He never forgot and he never forgave. In many ways this was the centre his imagination revolved around and he returned to it in story after story, like someone trying to scratch an incurable itch. Think of all those gloomy houses, all those vulnerable children. Even characters like Fagin, which was the name of the boy who befriended him in the workhouse. There were times when his novels threatened to turn into a huge set of memoirs in disguise. Now eventually he was allowed to go back to school, but the idea that continued to nag away at him was how easily he could have fallen into a life of poverty, or worse. I might easily have been, he wrote in a fragment of autobiography, I might easily have been, for any care that was taken of me, a little robber or a little vagabond. The only way of controlling his past, it turned out, was to tackle it head on. His daily routines, his obsession with cleanliness and neatness. According to his wife Catherine, living with Dickens was like living in prison. The difference, though, the key difference, was that in his own house, Dickens wasn't just a prisoner. He was also the governor. Every page he wrote was a way of freeing characters from his imagination and then putting them behind a little set of bars. 
if writing was a way of reliving the past, it was also a way of relieving himself from it. Now, of course, all that was a long time ago. So why do we still read Dickens? Well, to borrow Ezra Pound's definition of literature, Dickens' novels are news that have stayed news. His novels might transport us back to the 19th century, each one working like a little TARDIS, but they also reflect distorted versions of us back at ourselves. Think of the riots in Barnaby Rudge, or perhaps the fraudulent banker Myrtle in Little Dorrit, whose fall creates a whirlpool effect that sucks in the guilty and the innocent alike. Or in the current political climate, we might think of the magistrate in The Chimes, who says, there's a great deal of nonsense talks about want. Hard up, you know, that's the phrase, isn't it? Ha, ha, ha. Now, if, Dick, if thinking about Dickens makes us think about ourselves, inevitably this means there are lots of different Dickenses to choose from. But then there always have been. Lee Hunt said that when you met Dickens, his face contained the life and soul of 50 human beings. And Dickens himself knew that he was a bundle of different people who just happened to share the same skin. Novelist, playwright, actor, social campaigner, journalist, editor, philanthropist, amateur conjurer, hypnotist. He enjoyed coining nicknames for himself. Boz, Revolver, The Inimitable, The Sparkler of Albion. When he wasn't sitting at his desk, his life was a blur of movement. Even the colour of his eyes was hard to pin down. Some people said green, others said blue or hazel or grey or black or perhaps a muddy combination of them all. In effect, Dickens was an escape artist. Every time his contemporaries thought they'd fixed who he was, he managed to wriggle free. And you know what? He's still on the loose. <laughs>